and welcome back to Cooking the Books, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. This week, I'm off to the Baltic with Polish food writer Zuzia Zak, whose latest book, Amber and Rye, takes us to Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, an arty new Europe where the food has so much to say. The Baltic states are really buzzing with life at the moment. And after years and years of oppression, when, I mean, it was just the culture itself, I guess, was attacked. And with it, literature, you know, in a lot of the USSR states' language and food was also, yeah, it was a part of that. Susa explained how her trip back to the Baltic was a journey through her childhood memories to a place made magical through separation and storytelling. Um, I grew up in Poland, in communist Poland, Um, so I was there for most of the 80s and I came to England aged uh, seven and a half. So uh, my kind of later childhood was in England. Um, We couldn't go back to Poland for about seven years because we were waiting for um, our British passports. So actually there was kind of like that gap there where... um, I just really, really missed Poland and my family because my extended family was such a big part of my life. My parents were working all the time in Poland and my dad was actually often in England. So um, I had that time to really miss that, uh, you know, the the home country. And um, we started going back once or twice a year after that for really like long periods of time. You know, you go back for six weeks or something like that and really kind of reconnect. And tell us about your Lithuanian grandmother, whose stories kept so much of your childhood alive during that time of of great rupture. Uh, My babcia Halinka lived in this pre-war building in Warsaw with a beautiful view over the whole of Warsaw. And and she looked after me a lot. Um, Actually, I think my mum told me that she dropped me off aged 10 months with my grandmother and went to England to visit my dad. And she just dropped me off. And, uh, you know, I was there for sort of two weeks on my own with my grandma. And I think in a way that kind of started our kind of, you know, we had to survive together. (laughs) And we both had a very kind of deep connection um, as a result. Um, And so she used to tell me endless stories about Vilnius. I think she was there until her sort of uh, late teens or early 20s or something like that, when she was expatriated to to Poland, to the east of Poland. And it was a very idyllic version of it, which I can understand because having those seven years away from Poland, I can completely understand how you would idealise a certain country in a certain place. Obviously, there were some things going on in Vilnius that my grandma wasn't aware of because, you know, then all these other forces came and ripped everything apart and had a really traumatic, terrible ending. Um, but the Vilnius she remembered was um, cosmopolitan, was very, had a very good, kind energy. Um, you know, people were helping each other, very friendly. There was no crime and I, I'd like to think that now um, she went back to Vilnius again in the 90s and it broke her heart because it just wasn't the same place. But I like to think that now Vilnius has regained some of that and that she saw it through my eyes as this kind of wonderful place that, you, you know, its spirit is shining through now. The Baltic is such a, uh, an, a fascinating place. It feels post-Soviet, it feels post-communist, it feels 
dark and oppressive and concrete and grey. And and what you do so beautifully in that book is you unpack that. You take us into a colourful version. You bring it to life. Was that a surprise to you? Or were you trying to bring your grandmother's stories to this unsung place? Thank you, first of all. (laughs) That's really kind of you. Um, It's a really warm book, actually. And I think that kind of shines through the pages. Um, Was it a surprise to me? Hmm. Um, Well... I read some stuff about the Baltic states kind of saying, you know, they're quite dark and brooding. Maybe they are quite a lot of the time, but I went there. Um, the big research trip was in the summer and um, and I kind of, I already knew the Baltic coast from Poland. So I was hoping there was going to be sort of an extension of that. And there was, it's a, it's a beautiful coastline. And also because they're quite high up, um, you have these really long uh, sunsets and it was a lovely, warm um, time when we were there and the light was really beautiful. And I kind of wanted to bring a little bit of that because um, there is probably that dark brooding side in the winter as well to the the Baltic, but uh, there is also a different side. And I think that's important to kind of get that, you know, realistic picture of these countries. So we're not just seeing them as this kind of like concrete dark horrible places they're actually there's a lot of beauty there all three um capital cities in the baltic states are unesco world heritage sites so they're really worth visiting as well they are i mean there's a genuine brutalist aesthetic and that's not just in the buildings it comes from a, a, a time of lack the kind of the the whispers of a of a time gone by uh, are coming back and really shouting and 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 expressing themselves and that's what you found in in some of the bars and 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 the food halls and the markets the baltic states are really buzzing with life at the moment and yes i think after years and years of oppression when i mean it was just the culture itself i guess was attacked and with it you know um literature you know in a lot of the ussr states language you know um poland wasn't part of the ussr so luckily we had our language so that was you know looking back i think that was a um that was an advantage that that poland had but um and food was also yeah it was a part of that and it's funny now because um a lot of the soviet food is kind of being reinvented as well um as well as the kind of rediscovery of traditional local ingredients and methods and um it's it's sort of a renaissance i would say is going on it's a massive coastline that you travelled along so lots of different ingredients lots of different weathers lots of different systems all of which bring different food to the table um where did you find your way back to a a sense of home in any one of them lithuania absolutely (laughs) because um because of my grandma's kitchen and actually lithuanian and polish cooking is so close it's 
sometimes I think difficult to differentiate the two. And even in my first cookbook, Polska, I had the Lithuanian chłodnik, which is so part of Polish cuisine. It's it's also Polish, but we still know it as the Lithuanian chłodnik to kind of give homage to that. And that's the beetroots, the cold beetroot soup I'm talking about here, <laughs> where it originally came from, which is actually... Um, also really well known in Latvia and and, in other parts as well. Um, So Lithuania, there was a big kind of coming home in in the food and, you know, swimming kind of in these ancestral waters. I felt really kind of uh, close because because of my whole grandma's story, which it turned out um, that actually... um, my dad had a DNA test and found out he was half Baltic. So actually, we found out that my grandma was genetically from that area. And it was my first time visiting that area, even though I thought I knew it through all her stories and everything. So there was a kind of physical coming home to my sort of ancestral home in a way, and then also remembering all her stories as well. Um, The further away I got from Poland, the kind of uh, more different the food became. And in Estonia, I, I found Estonia fascinating because there were a lot of similarities, but then a lot of differences as well. So I think they um, they have more influences from Scandinavia as well. So it's sort of a real mixture there. And we'll find out more about those different ingredients and uh, that, that come from those different places through your full food moments. Let's just go through some of those. Your first one is a barley porridge. It sounds very humble, but actually it tells a, a, a really important story, doesn't it? It's a typical Latvian side dish. Tell us about why you chose the creamy barley groats with seasonal greens. It's such a delicious recipe for a start and it is humble. You're so right. And I think that's part of what makes it so good to me. Actually, all the recipes I chose are are quite simple in a way, um, you know, because I want to choose the recipes that I feel like people can cook and kind of can slot into people's um, repertoire and not do something too kind of maybe elaborate. Like we don't want to sort of start on the on the kind of potato dumplings, which, you know, it takes a little bit of practice to get right and people might put people off. I think we start with the really simple stuff. And barley porridge in Latvia is eaten kind of with bacon bits and stuff like that. It's sort of a creamy kind of porridge eaten maybe on the side of a meat dish. Um, I've made it into a veggie version because I like the kind of, I like to first of all make the this kind of food a little bit lighter. I think it's already a movement that's happening in the Baltic states already. So it's nothing, you know, I'm not sort of being revolutionary here or anything. I think I'm just going with that flow. But I made it into a vegetarian dish with sort of cheese and then seasonal vegetables on top. So it could be um, sort of uh, uh, broccoli or asparagus or something like that. And then hazelnuts on top of that, just really finish it off. And I think we were like in the shoot, we were all just like eating it <laughs> like there's no tomorrow. It's such a delicious dish. I mean, and, and it, it, it sounds really Moorish, but where did you eat it in Latvia? Take us to the moment where you actually ate it. Um, it was a dinner party um, in Riga. I was in, invited um, by my friend Linda to her friend's house. Um, Madara cooked it for me. They were both cooking for me kind of to show me what they kind of eat a sort of a modern Latvian kind of dinner party. And it was such a wonderful evening when I got to try lots of interesting things. And I could really see that 
um, that trend to make things a little bit lighter. It, it was served with bacon bits and stuff, and then there was also um, a fish pie there, and and um, this wonderful tomato tart, which has also made it into the book. Um, and then the dinner party finished. Um, the the host's son made these baked apples with uh, whipped cream inside, which is a wonderful memory, <laughs> him squirting the cream with his bow tie on <laughs> into the apples. He's a really avid cook. Wonderful. You were shown around uh, a lot of the Baltic journey through friends and friends of friends. And your second food memory is takes us to your Lithuanian friend, uh, Greta. Um, this this comes from her grandma's dacha on the Lithuanian coast. It's uh, potatoes with kefir and summer vegetables. This feels very Olya Hercules, actually. Oh, does it? <laughs> um, yeah, it's a kind of very rustic type dish, isn't it? I can I see what you mean by that. Yeah. Um, and uh, Greta is actually uh, my Lithuanian friend that lives in in London. And she was just taking me through some of her food memories. And um, actually, she was sort of had this cake recipe she wanted to share in the book because I invited her to share a recipe. But then she started telling me about her grandma's dacha and how her room used to... Um, she used to have like a little separate room, um, a little wooden house that overlooked the vegetable patch. And they would... Um, collect those vegetables and just make a very simple dish of potatoes with, um, you know, chives and um, tomatoes and cucumbers. And I added some radishes in there as well because there was kefir and I feel like kefir and radishes just kind of have to go together for me in my mind anyway. And it creates a really wonderful sauce as well when you put the kind of kefir and vegetables over the potatoes. At the bottom of it, you have that that sauce that you can just like scoop up with some bread or something like that. It's, again, such a simple dish and it's just so east european and how it feels you know this is potatoes and kefir and some crunchy vegetables we all used to eat that growing up in eastern europe yeah the dachas are you know part of those the summer kitchens that ollie uh, talks about did you get to any of those on your trip no on my trip i didn't actually i mean i kind of know the dachas from uh, just from my childhood because you know living in apartments and sort of uh, communist blocks people crave that connection with nature so in Poland they're called jałki and everyone has really a piece of land somewhere they go to at weekends whether it's in a forest or on the coast or or something like that just to be surrounded by nature and then you just eat outside and do everything outside and it's sort of like camping but you know you might just have you might have a proper house there some people now have just moved to their datches and built proper houses um, because the society is changing now of course um, others have a few, you know, they might go to different ones at different times of the year. Um, so, yeah, uh, it was nice hearing about Greta's dacha, although she said that um, when her grandma died, the family sold it and then her mum and her went to look for it and they couldn't find it anymore. So it's quite a sort of bittersweet memory there. Your third food moment this is the Cyrenaiki, the berry pancakes with summer berry salad. Uh, takes us to Estonia. Estonia seems to have, has a bit of an edge to it, kind of a arty, cool vibe. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, I would say that about all three of the Baltic states. Street art is a really big thing. And it was interesting, actually, to see the sort of street art change from one country to the next. 
Um, for example, in Kaunas in Lithuania, even the trams are covered in street art, although apparently they're about to get replaced by new trams, which is so sad because each one is like an individual piece of art. But Estonia, definitely. And the street art there is so... It feels like not street arty almost in the sense that it's like so arty and so stunning. It's just like these massive, beautiful murals. And even in villages, we found them in the middle of nowhere. Um the Serniki are from all over the Baltic states. I would say that's one recipe that's from uh, the whole Baltic states. It, I've eaten them in all three countries in different ways. Um, so, yeah, that's like maybe the slightly more complicated recipe. I chose that one because it's just my favorite brunch at the moment, especially with the popped chocolate bu- buckwheat, the really crispy chocolate buckwheat, which um, I came across in a few Estonian dishes. And um, we just weren't really familiar with in Poland. We don't really, you know, I my mum wasn't familiar with it. She couldn't get enough of the pop chocolate buckwheat. Um, so that's like a really interesting kind of Estonian twist on the on the Serniki pancakes, um, which I kind of had to do in my book because the Serniki is one thing, which is very Baltic and not that common in Poland. Um, I think they're quite common in Russia, though, as well. But then they have that kind of twist of that chocolate buckwheat, which is such an east european ingredient you know that's definitely one of my top ingredients that the kasha I'm, I'm so happy you can get it in a lot of places now you can that's really changed in the last five years because you you could only get it from a polish shop before really um because it's the toasted buckwheat it's the dark brown stuff which has a completely different taste to the to the other buckwheat um and um and now it's um it's sold as kasha written in english so k a s h a and um and available everywhere so it's so brilliant that the people are finally have this ingredient which is so specific it really tastes like this part of the world and done in a in a little bit of a different way because this is the new wave of baltic cuisine that i wanted to highlight here so uh, some of the recipes do have little twists on them that um that i found um either in the baltics or sometimes i just do my own little twist on a traditional ingredient i think because it's in the spirit of the baltics the new baltics now and of course immigration is such a treasure for us because the people who come from the old country need their food to remind them of who they are and so their food comes too and so we can go to wonderful polish supermarkets and get so many of these things and try them out ourselves um but your fourth food moment is is probably the kind of the quintessential um baltic dish i mean it's certainly something that i would always associate with 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 the baltic food um the summer blueberry soup and it's so pretty it is (laughs) we used corn flowers in there as well because they're such a wonderful sort of wild edible flower to decorate a dish with um, that always reminds me of a woods in the in the Estonian countryside where we went blueberry picking with my daughter and my partner and um, and a few other people from uh, the place we were staying at. And, you know, the woods is just one of my favourite places. The sun shining through the pines and creating that smell. It's just my favourite smell. So I think a big part of berry and blueberry picking and mushroom picking is just being in the woods. And I think the East Europeans are very practical people. So, you know, while some people might go to the woods to do forest bathing, I feel like we found a way to do forest bathing while, 
you know, getting food and uh, doing something really like practical. You call the book Amber and Rye. Why Rye? We'll go into the amber, but why rye? Rye is such an important crop in these lands because of the climate. And I know the book is a very warm and it's sort of um, quite summery, but actually we have to remember that um, a lot of the traditions like fermenting and everything are suited to the long, harsh winters. And rye is also a crop that I don't think the Baltics could could have survived without it, to be honest with you. And I think we're starting to appreciate it more now in the West. I think in 2025 or 24, there's going to be the year of rye because it's a crop that doesn't really need pesticides. It just, you know, it's a life-saving crop. It's so healthy as well. So it's life-giving. Amber takes us way back. Um, I love the way that you talk about Amber. I love the way that you write it. It brings so much depth. Uh, you bring stories from hundreds, well, thousands of years ago, and uh, particularly the story of Amber. Tell us about the Amber Trail through life and through your book. Well, yes, the book starts with a, with a photograph of my grandma's Amber necklace <laughs> and uh, and a quote from uh, some Lithuanian literature, which is a very beautiful description with a sort of amber in it, which I think is quite evocative of this whole area and kind of the ju- where the journey started, which was, you know, in my grandma's cupboard with all her silk scarves and leather gloves and amber necklaces. And that's, that's where it started, really. And the plum butter under her cupboard, <laughs> which is also in the book. And then, of course... Um, when you delve into the Baltic history, it's been so, it was so important. Um, the people in the area, to be fair, really treasured amber as something quite spiritual in a way. Um, but as soon as it got exported to the sort of Greek and Roman empires, it you know it was one of the pillars of the what the Roman Empire was based on. It brought up in so much finances and so much power and it was a real kind of um, status symbol and there are very various stories you know also in Greek mythology which I sort of like wanted to tie into it oh do tell (laughs) is it Gerati Gerata the goddess of the seas who lived in an amber palace under the Baltic Sea so Gerata was a goddess um, who lived under the sea and this is a Lithuanian story from Lithuanian mythology. And she wanted to tell off a young fisherman for overfishing. Um, so she went up to, the, um, to his boat to tell him off and, uh, and punish him. And she fell in love with him. And he fell in love with her. And she brought him um, under the sea and allowed him to live with her in her amber palace. Um, but when the, the main god, I think he's called Pekunis in, uh, in Lithuanian, Perun, it would be Perun in Polish, who's sort of, um, he was the main god of thunder, um, learned of this and uh, it wasn't allowed for a mortal to live, you know, in the realm of the gods. So he destroyed her, her amber palace and the amber still washes up on the, on the Baltic shore to this day. And as a child, you found resin on the beach. And I love the idea of this little Zusa sitting on the beach, rubbing 
the, the resin, like a little bit of a genie lamp and the stories from your grandmother. I mean, I'm probably over romanticising it, but <laughs> it was exactly like that. Yeah, <laughs> it felt felt very magical. I was kind of like the the people of, of the Baltic countries that found it. You know, you find it and it's this tiny little, very light pebble. So it doesn't feel like a stone. It's lighter than that. And it's um, it's it's not shiny as yet, but there's a certain quality to it and it warms in your hand to the touch. So there is a sort of a immediately kind of like a spiritual, physical connection to this little little piece of amber. And um, and I think you can't fail but notice that if you're sort of seeing it, you find it washed up on the shore, maybe less these days. But when I was young, there used to be a lot of it, especially after a storm. So those stories... The, the link with your grandmother who started this whole journey. I love the fact that there's this wonderful sort of circular nature to this book where you end thinking about those stories that came from your childhood and swimming in the nearest, the, the river that's that goes through Vilnius that your grandmother used to swim in. Uh, how, how important was it to really bring that circular nature to it, to bring your grandmother full circle? I wasn't planning to make it circular. It just kind of worked out that way that um, we started off with my grandma's stories and our journey ended with Vilnius. And just before we gave the hire car back, it was such a hot day and I was like, I need to get to this river. <laughs> um, just because we'd been driving for a long time, but also it was so important to me just to feel those ancestral waters. I know, you know, for me just symbolically, but also physically to kind of experientially kind of feel those waters and and how she used to swim and see the view that she used to have because she used to tell me about this river she used to swim in and it had to be the nearest. It's a very fast flowing river actually so you have to be quite careful in there otherwise it just sort of drags you away. Um, But you can just swim against the tide and get very good exercise. Um, So we went there and it's it's such a special place actually because it's just outside the city and yet it feels so rural and I imagine it hasn't changed much since she was there. Um, so the story just kind of came full circle and naturally finished that way in Vilnius, in that river. With your child? Exactly, with my own child, yes. And I would, I would so love to go back to Vilnius, actually, because I felt such an affinity with that place. Your, your grandmother died a few years ago. What do you think she would have felt about this book? I think she, oh, I think she would have loved it. I think she probably would have cried because she always used to cry when she saw anything she liked. So she probably would have cried while looking through its pages. And, um, and I hope she would have seen Vilnius more how she remembered it. If it encourages people to find the Baltic to, for, all sorts of people all over the world to to go there for the food. Would that be a wonderful legacy for her? Absolutely. I think that's a really good reason to go there. And when you do go there, you'll find a whole lot more. It's a really beautiful part of the world. Thanks for listening. You can buy all the books featured on Cooking the Books by clicking on the bookshop tab at jillysmith.com. While you're there, do sign up for the newsletter to keep up with my news, including the new Cooking the Books Supper Club. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and I'll see you next week. I'm virtually in Puglia with a legend that is Sophie Grigson who's spotted in her new home a curious absence of chickens. <laughs>